Hello and welcome to Messiah's Upper Room Podcast. Each week, you'll join Messiah's Upper Room Bible Study Class led by Pastor Jim Oddy. This week, we are continuing our series over the Ten Commandments, titled Foundational Truth for a Confused World. Enjoy. Podcast for today. All right. So as I promised, we're going to finish the uh, Sixth Commandment. Uh, at least our study of it. Of course, that's the different than finishing it, but reminding, uh, reminding you of that. So, so where we are now is to finally be able to kind of talk about in, uh, in some real practical ways, how the commandment touches our lives in terms of marriage itself. And one of the, uh, one of the areas I think that is a struggle for a lot of people of faith is not so much the idea of getting married. It's not so much the idea of, of, of growing a strong marriage. It's so, that's an important thing. But what happens with respect to divorce? And then what happens with respect to the possibility that somebody could remarry after divorce? Is that allowed? Is that okay? Is that sin? You know, where does that all fit in? And so to, to sort of get a sense of that, we go back to the scriptures. That's our foundation. That's where we always go. So the two places where Jesus really uh, talks quite a bit about marriage and divorce and remarriage is in Matthew 19. And then a little bit further down, we'll get into Matthew 5, I think. Yeah, Matthew 5. And there are some verses in there that make total sense. And then there are some verses in there that really kind of cause us to kind of twist our heads around because we're trying to figure out what is it that he's saying and what is it that he's meaning. Okay, so let's look at uh, Matthew 19, 1 to 10. And we'll start with that, and then we'll work our way a little bit through that. Now, when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered into the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, well, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and and to send her away? He said to them, because of the hardness of your heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. What do you make of the disciples reaction to Jesus's words? By the way, at the very end, they got it. They got it. They got what he said is that marriage is not some flippant thing. And ending a marriage isn't a flippant thing. That this was a serious thing, so much so that they were thinking maybe it would be better just to live with somebody. Maybe it would be better just to stay single. Maybe it would be better not to be in a hurry to get married. That's what that's at least my read of what they're saying. Okay, so um, so Jesus is doing his ministry 
And the Pharisees come up to him and they're testing him. Now that word test sometimes is a little bit of a, a trap word for us because we read the word test as trapping. They some, that they're trying to trap him into something. That's not the case here. What they want to know is what his position is on the idea of divorce. Now, the reason why they wanted to know that, because within the sect of Phariseeism, there were two camps in the, in the religious community. The Pharisees were the more conservative group, and their belief was, was that, that uh, it, it was legitimate, biblically legitimate, to be able to divorce one's wife. And again, remember, we're talking about the fact that the males in this culture have all the power, right? They're the ones who get to decide if they're going to divorce their wives. It was very rare for a wife to, uh, to decide to divorce the husband and be able to carry that through. Okay. There probably were many wives that would have liked to divorce their husbands, but, but they didn't have the power and they didn't have the support of the uh, religious community to be able to do that. So again, that's why the language here is directed to the male. All right. That's, that's the point. But he says they're asking, is it lawful in not in terms of civic law, but in terms of God's law. So the Pharisees were the conservative group and their belief was, and their teaching was, was that the only legitimate grounds, if you want to use that word, that's kind of a word that's used today was uh, sexual immorality or adultery of some kind. So if you're, if you, you were married to somebody and you were miserable with them, but they were faithful to you sexually, then it was not, it, 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 God would not bless or it was not lawful under God's law to divorce that person. The Sadducees, on the other hand, were more of the liberal group. And their liberality was not restricted to this. They, they believed in a more rationalistic approach, for example, to faith life and even to the Bible. So, for example, the Sadducees didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in an afterlife. They didn't believe that, that all of God's word in the Old Testament was God's work. Okay, so there was, their liberality was, was uh, extended to other things, not just to this. But their belief was was that you could divorce, a guy could divorce his wife for any reason. And that sexual immorality, as bad as that was, did not, that was not the limit or the extent to which a person could have grounds. So in some of the rabbinical writings of the, uh, of the Sadducees, um, the, the thought was, if, I, if a guy did not like the way his wife aged... Yeah, that would go over real big today, wouldn't it? Uh, you know what people today say, irreconcilable differences. That's kind of what, if he didn't like her cooking, if she burned the toast, who said, uh-oh, over there? Who said that? <laughs> Somebody, oh, how, oh, trouble, trouble. Yeah, well, I'll have some time after class. We can kind of work that out a little bit. Yeah, sure. So you see that difference, and that's a stark difference. I mean, there's a, there's a major difference between saying, I don't like the way you now fill in the blank as opposed to, as opposed to adultery. And so what the, what the Pharisees are doing is they're coming to Jesus and they're saying, which camp are you in? And so then notice what Jesus does. They want to know what are the legitimate grounds for divorce. And what Jesus does is he turns the tables completely and says, we're not, we're not going to talk about divorce. 
We're going to talk about marriage. And so then he goes back to Genesis and he quotes Genesis that, you know, in the beginning, this is how it was. God created them male and female. He brought uh, Adam and Eve together. And there you have the first marriage. And it was intended by God to do what? To last how long? Not forever. Just the extent of your life on earth. I know we always say that, but some people believe that you're married in heaven and that, that does not hold water in a biblical way. Okay. We could talk about that some other time too, but it, but it's just this idea that that's how it was. That's why he says that there, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So God's intent is that if you're going to get married, take it seriously And because marriage is a serious thing, that's what we ought to do. There's a lot of people today, I believe, that do not take it seriously. And that it's it's sort of quick to begin, quick to end. If this doesn't work out, I can always find somebody else. That's the attitude a lot of people have. And apparently that attitude was also present in in Jesus' day as well. All right? Well, so they're going to counter his argument then. And so then what they do is a little bit of a, a scripture war here. You know, they, they go back to Exodus and they say, well, we'll see your verse and raise you one. All right. And so then what they do is they, they go out of, uh, of uh, Exodus or Leviticus and they say, well, then why did Moses command somebody to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? If you go back and look at those verses, the point of those verses was not to provide grounds for divorce. It was to say that if there was going to be a divorce, here's how you do it. You write out a certificate that says, I am divorced. And you hand it to her, and then she's free to go, and she's not obligated under the, the, uh, the uh, protection or the limits of having been married to this person anymore. That's what the point was. They were taking that and saying, well, Moses commanded this. So what is Jesus' response? He says, no. He says, Moses did what? He allowed you to divorce your wives for what? Or because of what? The hardness of your heart. Okay? But even then, he says, from the beginning, it was... Not so. So see, even with hardness of heart kinds of things. Now, people today kind of want to um, define what hardness of heart is. And sometimes the danger in doing that is that we take it out of hardness of heart and we move it into personal preference. Okay? But generally speaking, the kinds of things that are thought of as hardness of heart today, even within our uh, Christian walk would be uh, any one of the four A's, okay, four A's. So one A is adultery, that would be obviously one. Abandonment is another one. Addictions, depending on what it is, of course. And then do you know what the fourth one would be? Abandonment, abandonment. Oh, did I say abandonment already? Abuse, that one too, so five. No, no, just four. Yeah. So that, that's what that would be. All right. So you got you, any one of those, but even having said that, and here's where the caution is. He's cautioning us to, to take marriage so seriously that maybe one would even consider the possibility of, of working that through and not divorcing. 
Whereas the Pharisees were kind of looking at it from the perspective of, oh, okay, that happened. I'm out of here. And there's a lot of people today that would say that. Now, I would always say that on an individual basis, case by case basis, you have to look at that, each of those situations and determine if it's safe to stay married. Because in some situations, abandonment could be one of them, but abuse certainly would be one. And oftentimes addictions will feed the other ones, okay? But even in those cases, I've known some remarkable people who, who were uh, willing and able to, uh, to work that through and stay married and have a, have a, have a great marriage, all right? So it, it doesn't happen that way for everybody, nor should we say it should, all right? We can't, can't make that kind of uh, judgment about that. But the power of God's grace to change people's lives is pretty astounding, and it probably is the most astounding when you see situations like that. Does that make sense? Yeah. So, again, it, it's looking at from the, per, from the per perspective of the permanency of marriage as opposed to the, the perspective of that it, it, what's in it for me, and I'm here to get my needs met, and if I don't get my needs met, I'm going to go find somebody that can meet my needs. And that's very, very common today when people get into marriage, and then certainly when things start going south in the marriage, which they always do, of course, when we have discussed that to nth degree, right, Carl? We've discussed that, how things go south, and, and yeah. <laughs> Carl doesn't remember. You don't remember what we talked about last week. Well, yeah. Yeah, opposites attract. That's what it is. Yeah. When the opposites uh, start to show up. Okay? So, so does it, do you get the gist here of what he's saying? is the significance of it and the importance of it, right? And he's reminding them in verse 9, whoever divorces his wife except for one of those A's, see, and marries another commits adultery. That's how, that, I guarantee you, that is not the view today that most people have. If the marriage doesn't work out, well, we'll just, you know, irreconcilable differences, we'll get divorced and we'll then remarry. What he's saying is that if you remarry, you're committing adultery. Because the reason for the divorce was not one of those four A's. That's pretty significant, right? Pretty severe. All right, next page. So now Jesus, at a different time, and this was in the Sermon on the Mount, had, had some statements to say about marriage, divorce, and remarriage in Matthew 5, 20, uh, 31, 32. So if you look like top third of the page, you'll see it there, all right? He says, it has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for immorality makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries the divorced woman commits adultery. Now, what does that sound like to you? What's that sound like to you? Who said sexist? Who said that? <laughs> All right, defend that position. What do you mean by that? What does that mean? What do you mean? We're talking, it's this putting all the guilt on the woman here. And we're, we're talking about men getting a divorce because the women have done things wrong, not the man. Unless the woman did something wrong. That's the point. But we know what? <laughs> now, I knew you were, I knew that, yes. This table up here is trouble. Any of you that I ever asked to teach for me, just remember to move to this side of the, of the room. Yeah. 
No, but you're onto something there. You're onto something, right? Yeah, Keith. Well, back to her point. But who married the divorced woman? He committed adultery, is what it says. So, okay, so this is why this is confusing, okay? Because forever the church has taught that divorced people should not remarry anybody. Because if you marry anybody, then you're guilty of what? Adultery. Because you remarried or you married a divorced person. That's the way the church traditionally has, has taught this, right? And it's, it's created a giant burden, I think, for people of good faith who maybe even were in this, and he, he uses the word here, were, was the victim of adultery, all right, so let's see if we can sort of uh, pull this apart a little bit. All right, so you have, uh, you have a husband and wife who are married, and uh, one of them commits adultery. Now, here it, it's the, the, the statement is he and she, but again, remember the, the culture that they're in is where the males have all the power. The, the women don't have the power, okay? So we just kind of keep, keep that in the, in the forefront of, of your mind, all right? So you have two people that are married, and let's just say, for the sake of keeping it easy and running the risk of me getting them M&Ms thrown at me, um, let's just say that he commits adultery and she doesn't. Or is it lawful, not commanded, just lawful, for there to be a divorce in that family? Yeah, because the vow's already been broken, has it not? See, having an affair with somebody else breaks that vow. It breaks that oneness. Now, is it unforgivable? No, it's forgivable, right? But man, there'll be a ton of work that has to be done in order to get trust back, to get intimacy back, to get all those things back that get lost when that happens. Okay? Yeah. What's the stigma on the wife that was divorced? So I'm going to that, okay? Again, this table right here is very, very articulate. I love that. All right, very good. So you're tracking you're tr as I move closer to this side of the room, right? Yeah. Okay. All right. But you can see where this has created a lot of consternation in the Christian community, right? And so we, we want to try to we want to try to relieve that if uh, if we can. All right. So so let's say that again. Let's say that that someone in the marriage commits adultery, has sexual immorality with somebody they're not married to. Okay, then that then in the eyes of the law of God's law, then it's allowed, right? Now, what if the divorce occurs, and there is not sexual immorality, but the divorce occurs anyway? In this case, what he's saying is, is that the wife is now stigmatized as having committed adultery when in fact she did not. And in fact, maybe he committed adultery, but that's not known. And so the assumption in that community is, oh, well, we know why they divorced. We know because she went out on the town on him. So she now has the stigma. Now, what if she was the one that, that did? What if she had the affair? Then she has earned that, right? By her actions, she, she has. But in many cases, she was the innocent party. If you, I'm not always comfortable using innocent guilt here, but I'll use it here. She's the one who did not commit adultery. Maybe he did, or maybe just he decided, I don't like the way you look as you get older, Right? 
The assumption is the stigma is, is attached to her now that she's an adulteress, right? Now, what happens if she, the innocent party, goes out and gets, gets remarried? Whoever she marries now also carries the stigma, unfair stigma, of what? Of being adulterer. And maybe people even think, and she was, he was the one she did it with in the first place. See, it's, 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 the issue here is, is the way it plays, okay? And I, I think part of what the struggle here has been is that the Greek language does, these Greek words it, they don't have an easy, uh, an easy uh, translation to do in terms of English, all right? And so the, the Greek word here for where it says makes her the victim of adultery, okay, that's in the passive tense. Those of you that have studied language, when something's in the passive tense, it means that you didn't do it, you are the receiver of what was done to you. That's passive tense. And that's what this is here is that the adultery was done to her. That's what he's saying. But it's hard to sort of translate it in a way that makes any sense. Okay? So, so, so how do you explain then if only the male can get the paperwork and say, out, out, you're gone. Right. The woman can't do that in this era. Not in that era. That's right. Yeah. So actually the man is the one who initiated this because of he or her adultery, and she has to stay with it or be cast out and not have any support at all. And that was the way that society handled that. So very often when women would either get divorced or lose their husbands, there was no social safety net. And then if the stigma was attached to you, you would be shunned by your community. And so you'd have to probably move away or uh, go into prostitution or something like that. Okay, that was often the, and that's terrible. That's terrible for a lot of different reasons. Okay, but see, notice again, what Jesus is doing is he's not sugarcoating the responsibility that in, a, in that male-driven community or in that male-driven culture, then the responsibility lays on the male. So he says, if you want your cake, you're going to have to eat it too. You know, if you're going to, if you're going to, uh, subvert God's intent, then you bear the sin, not only of what you've done, but also the next, the next, uh, relationship. Okay. That's how serious it was. And so see, that's why, uh, in Matthew 19, we see the disciples, they got it. They, they heard exactly what Jesus was saying. And that was contradictory to the culture of the day, the culture of the day, given the, not just Jewish, uh, disagreements about this, but also then the Roman thoughts about, about marriage and, and fidelity and all those kinds of things. And then Greek influences, all those influences were present in, uh, in Jesus's day. And they affected the way people thought and what people did with respect to, uh, to a marriage and divorce and remarriage. Okay. So what do we say then when Christians divorce? If you go down the middle of page 46, it is a sad thing. It is. It's a sad thing when people divorce. Sometimes it might be a necessary thing because of an issue of safety. Okay? But even then, it's not mandated. You know, Christians can reconcile. Does it take a lot of work? Yes, it does. Does it take a lot of time? Yes, it does. Is it worth it? Heck yeah. 
to at least put the effort into it. Sometimes it's, it can't be worked out. Okay. And probably, probably all of us here today know somebody or maybe ourselves have been through it ourselves to have gone through the pain of that. It's a very difficult thing. It's also hard on kids. Okay. That should be no secret to anybody, even though we always say, well, kids are resilient and, you know, they were young and all those things. Um, when, uh, when, when you talk to a child, or at least I do talk to uh, an adult child of someone who was divorced, that kid remembers that day. Okay. It's just part of it. And so it's something to be aware of in terms of not going into divorce, uh, lightly and thinking that there's not a residual effect or a ripple effect that goes out. It is, in spite of kind of what we say or what popular culture says. Yeah, Brenda. Okay. In a case where one parent is um, abusing a child, yes. and CPS has come in and said this parent must be removed from the the parent, uh, you're, I'm going to try to repeat so everybody can hear. Okay. So in a case where one parent is abusing a child and CPS comes and removes the parent from the house. Right. Okay. Are you then advocating that they try to save that marriage? I'm advocating that. I realize it's a difficult case. Yeah. Well, again, remember I said earlier that I would have to look at each case individually. Okay, sometimes CPS does what it's supposed to do and many times or sometimes it doesn't, depending on whatever the caseload is and how severe it is and all those kind of things. So the CPS issue is kind of its own thing. All right. But I would always look at it separately. In cases of child abuse, I would be very inclined to say that that marriage is unsalvageable because it's not safe. Okay, not for the spouse. Uh, the, the remaining spouse or for the child. And so that's why abuse is in, the, is in one of the four A's. We're not just talking about abuse of the spouse. Abuse is abuse. So I hope you don't, and thank you for clarifying that because I, I want to make sure that I didn't, didn't say that. All right. But that, no, that's a, that's a great correction. Again, it would be a case-by-case basis as opposed to making a blanket statement. It, it kind of, you know, the other, the other side of it, and we see a lot of this today, is that accusations of abuse are made by the spouse that wants the kids. So the divorce is already, is already in the works or has already happened, but the uh, argument is over who gets the kids. And so very often CPS gets called in because there's been an accusation of abuse, which is not true. Now, sometimes it is, and it needs to be legitimately uh, uh, investigated, but sometimes it's not true. It's just the way to get leverage in, in order to be able to keep the kids or, or have cu- uh, full custody of the kids. So there's all different kinds of ways that when things go south, people uh, find ways to manipulate uh, the system. And that's why I say in, it, it's always got to be an individual case-by-case basis, okay? But in general, that doesn't negate what Jesus is saying about God's intent in terms of marriage, And maybe, and this, you know, I don't know, this is kind of one of those um, things to ponder a little bit that might suggest that we be a little bit wiser about who we marry. Now, that's pretty radical to say that, but, 
You know, actually, and that is not to ignore, Carl, what you said about opposites attracting. It's not that at all. But I think that maturity is a big player in terms of whether or not that marriage goes 50 years happily. And maybe we mature together. I mean, how many of us were actually mature at 25? I don't know. You know, who knows? But, but that we mature together, that there's a maturing, a maturation process going on. And some people never grow up. They, they get married and they stay at that age and then they think this is the way it's always supposed to be. And, and yes, chronologically the age, but in terms of the maturity and decision making and leaning toward each other and making room and all that stuff that we do to um, accommodate each other, it isn't there. And I think maturity is a bigger, is a bigger player there. Yeah, Carl. I've heard that the uh, Indian culture, that is the East, East Indian culture, uh -huh. has the lowest divorce rate and yet they have the highest uh, arranged marriage rate. And, and yet there's such a, a cultural commitment yeah. and a stigma about violating that family commitment. Right. Uh, so how many of you would vote for arranged marriages? Nobody would. Yeah, I know. That's a hard one in America. Um, I did a wedding. Let's see. I did a wedding. How long ago was it? Uh, it was an international wedding. We did one here. I think it was Pakistani uh, Christian wedding. And in meeting with a young couple before we did the, you know, the big thing, I asked them, well, how did you meet each other? And that, they were arranged. And I, I thought, and so they go to UTD. Well, they did then. One was studying to be a doctor and the other one studying to be something else. And so, um, and so these were like well-educated kids. And, and it was kind of, it wasn't shocking because I kind of knew that that was a, the cultural thing in Pakistan. But what, what, when I asked the kids, what did you think about that? Because I thought they would be like all up in arms about, oh, our parents are telling us what to do. They loved it. They felt so um, more secure because the idea that somebody else had checked these, each other out and the families and the whole thing, and, and that they had done all that, they were confident in the, the, uh, the, uh, uh, how, how well their parents who love them, uh, how, uh, the good job that they had done in, in choosing a mate. Now it's, it's, I haven't tracked with them to see what their marriage is like, but I would guess that the maturity part is, is very much there. It still means that you still have to work things out. You know, you can't say, well, our parents put us together. And so now we're stuck for life. You know, you, you can't do that. Because that's just measuring the start of the marriage. That's not measuring the, the length of the marriage and how, how you deal with things that come up. But uh, that, that arranged marriage idea among Americans, forget it, that nobody wants to do that, right? But uh, as these other cultures come to our doors, Pakistanis and, and, and Eastern Indians and all, all different kinds of cultures, that's very common for that to occur. Okay. Is it okay to marry somebody and have your, your parents like them? That's a good thing. Yeah, that's a good thing. Yeah. John. Uh, well, I was just, I was just thinking that because I, I know I have a couple friends that have been through arranged marriages and they're in their 50s. So John knows some people that have been through arranged marriages. And they're, and they're both Indian. Both Asian, but, Indian. Yeah. Um, you know, one thing he told me uh, was that 
When you go into an arranged marriage, one thing is you've got a large support group already around you right. because both families are already bought into this. Yes. And and so if when you incur difficult times, both families are there to support instead of one saying, oh, yeah, get rid of that bump. Yeah. So. No, that's right. And it's an intergenerational family deal. It's the grandparents and the great-grandparents if they're still living, and it's, it's all these kinds of things. So when we did, uh, when I did one of the... Uh, Pakistani weddings here at our church, it's so interesting the difference between the culture, particularly with respect to time. So here, if the wedding is scheduled for two o'clock, by golly, we are walking down the aisle at two o'clock and we are all lined up at, at uh, 10 till two so that we can all go down the music stage and the whole thing and then it'll go for about 35 minutes. The mistake I made was thinking that's how it would be in the international wedding. Because in the international wedding, 2 o'clock means nothing. And so even though everybody else might be there, the bride might be still getting her makeup done, or they might be uh, pulling up in the limo, and then everybody's taking pictures, and we're sort of standing there like this doing this. So there is a different time frame. There's a, it's, a, it's a whole different thing, which again... Um, from my German uh, sort of, we shall start on time and we shall uh, be, have everything decent and in order, you know, that was some lear a learning curve for me, okay? And Pastor Coleman has also been on that learning curve. <laughs> well, we still kind of talk about that. So, so the, the kind of way we've divvied it up now is, is that I'm more likely to do the international wedding. <laughs> But there ha we haven't had that many, you know, we haven't had that many. But nowadays, people want to get married at a venue. They don't want to get married at a church. And because then they can get a better deal on, you know, the hall and all that. Yeah, Phil and then Brenda. So, well, go, changing subjects yeah. a little bit. Oh, thank you. To, back to when Christians divorce yeah. and then get remarried. Yeah. How would you approach that subject with, with a Christian that divorced and remarried not because of sexual immorality at the, at the beginning. It all stemmed from a question I was thinking of earlier is, it, would it be appropriate to ask someone who claim, who says they're a Christian, yeah. um, that, ha that you know has been divorced and remarried, yeah. is it appropriate to ask whether it was because of sexual immorality? Or not, because if they're, because it, it's it, it's coming from a, a perspective, at least I think, of, of caring and love for them to make sure that their salvation is secured and that they're not actively living in adultery, uh, even if they've been remarried because of not uh, due to something other than sexual immorality. How would you approach that? That <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, now I'm moving over here. Uh, okay. Yeah. Okay. So you're asking me. And so I'll tell you what me. Okay. So this is kind of the broken record here. What is it that I'm ultimately interested in? Keeping the door open. Okay. So I, I'm looking at this conversation long-term. I'm not looking at it as an opportunity in the short term to, uh, I will find that out. Okay. Partly because when it occurs, there's great wounding. And if I don't deal with the wounding now, I'll have to deal with it later, 
particularly as we get further into the marriage and now I'm starting to trust you. See, trust is the thing that takes a big hit. It's not the only thing, but it's the big thing that takes a hit. And trust is strong, but it's also fragile. So if somebody comes into an existing marriage, having experienced the breakage of trust through sexual immorality or adultery, okay, the struggle is, can I ever trust anybody ever again? Okay. When I encounter that with somebody, I go very gently because the wound that's there is so significant that I'm going after it with um, Q-tips. Okay. So your question is, well, then what if it's not? Yeah. So in my view, if they're already remarried, see, I'm not going to say to them, well, you're living in sin because you're already remarried and you should divorce that person and go back and marry the other person. You see, that's, that's the burden that has kind of been placed on people's hearts over the years by the church, that somehow this is an illegitimate marriage now because you, mar- you got divorced and then remarried for the wrong reason. Okay? I would say this is a new marriage. It's kind of a start over. Yeah, there's going to be some, some residuals from the previous marriage, particularly if the reasons for the divorce were not sexual immorality or even any of the four A's. But apparently there were other significant things going on that would have made it very likely that person would get divorced. So we're going to, I'm going to get to that, but I'm going to go in the side door. Okay. But that's me. That's, you're not probably, you see, some of this is how the individual pastor or counselor deals with it as opposed to how somebody else might deal with it. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah. It's a slippery slope. Is it not? Yeah, and I'm aware that I am on the slippery slope with them. But I take, I really do, I take a long view. I take a relationship view toward these kinds of things. And I want to engage somebody, and it might take a little longer. I just don't feel that it serves a good purpose to go quickly into, let's figure out what we can, can condemn, and then just lay a bunch of guilt on people. And then there's very little receptivity to what it is that you would want to say in the form of the good news. So that's kind of how I roll. Okay. Yeah. But I catch criticism for that because there are people that say, well, right is right and wrong is wrong. And you need to just tell people what's wrong and what's right. And I will, but not at when we first meet. Okay, so it's a little bit different. Okay, again, uh, the Christian church has not always been kind to divorced Christians. That's true. All right. And some of that, again, was this understanding of the scriptures that it was partly in that, but partly also in smaller communities. uh, There was such great shame associated with uh, divorce that people would get shunned for it. And then the church would get caught up in that. Okay. And so it's in some cases, I don't know that this happened in Lutheran churches, but where the divorced person has the scarlet letter now, you know, and has to wear that every day. So everybody knows, oh, yeah, you know her or you know him. They're divorced. Okay. this is something, though, that often happens is who gets the church in the custody agreement. Does that now this is kind of it's it's a sad thing. Say that people get divorced and they're not fighting over the kids they are fighting over whose church it is. 
And in churches that are smaller churches, that's a pertinent thing. If they live in the same town and and they're going to stay in the same town and there's only one Lutheran church, one of them will stay and the other one will leave. Even if that church has two services, which you'd think, hey, you know, one is early, one is late. You get it. But it doesn't work that way because the friends that they have are in the church. And when people get divorced and divorced people will say this to us, they'll say, it just, it added an element of awkwardness that was not there before. Okay. And so very often that is the case. One person either might become unchurched or join a different uh, denomination. Okay. So some, uh, some resources here for you. Uh, divorce care is an excellent one. There, there are lots of divorce care groups out there and it's a very helpful thing. It's a 13 week uh, sort of support group learning thing where people can, can uh, hear about uh, their divorce and other people's divorce and then actually have some steps of healing and also learn some things particularly about um, themselves in, in divorce or what maybe have led up to the divorce in terms of how to uh, uh, heal that before they move into a remarriage. And then another book, this is kind of an old book that's been around a lot, but I love it. It's called After the Affair. For people that have gone through an affair in the marriage, there's very little out there uh, resource-wise that helps people walk through the process of rebuilding. And, and so this is a good resource. It, now, you know, you always have to read with a little bit of, of discernment that you wouldn't buy into everything it says. But I do like what it says with respect to the idea of knowing wh- what the steps are and what the markers are of a, uh, of a, a marriage that's, it's, that's on the way to being repaired versus one that isn't on its way to being repaired, but in fact, it's just going through the motions. Okay. And then also some resources for remarriage issues. Uh, the Smart Step Family. Uh, this is kind of a series now that's uh, been created. 101 Tips for the Smart Step Mom. Notice there are no Smart Step Dads, so they're not even going to bother writing books for those guys, right? Okay. But very often, this is one of those difficult things where you have a blended family now, and you have you have somebody who marries and then the kids are still at home or maybe not, but maybe they are up in arms about you're going off and marrying that person. And here you completely have given up on remembering mom or remembering dad. So, so these are some real issues that uh, can be addressed. And here are some, some resources to do that. Okay. Thought you had your hand up sort of, or your finger. Uh, 202 steps tip for the smart Have you been waiting all day to put that in? Yes. Or maybe it's 202 tips for the dumb smart, you know, whatever. Yeah, it could be. All right. But again, see, these are these are really good resources. Very practical and, and they're, they're helpful because sometimes you're, you're marrying into a minefield and you don't know where the mines are until what? Till you step on them and then you know, right? But it's like, okay. All right, one thought. Oh, I need to say, we're not going to get to the part where it says <laughs> what a beloved life looks like. Okay, so I'm going to summarize it real quick. Summarize it, okay? As Jesus does for the church... Husbands do for their wives. 
That's what Ephesians 5 is about. As Jesus has done for the church, the body of believers, that's the template for us husbands to do for our wives. Now, in the same way that the church or the body of believers responds to the husband, responds to Jesus, wives are to what? Respond. I'm not looking at anybody in particular here, all right? <laughs> even though I just did, all right? Wives are res- to respond to their husbands. So it's a flow, okay? That's what this is. Finally, I put this up on the board, this little flow thing. So this would be the church. Jesus initiates uh, dying to self for the church. He gave himself up for us. That's what he says, right? And as he gives himself up for us, we respond in faith to him. So grace, faith, grace, faith, there's the flow, all right? Same thing then, husbands and wives. The husband, at least in Ephesians 5, he's the initiator of the loving. He's the initiator of the loving. And then she responds with respect. So love and respect, love and respect, love and respect. And, and when that's a continuous thing, there's no breakage. There's no indication of where one ends and the other begins. Now you got the, now you got the recipe for 50 years happily. It's not rocket science, right? But see, again, that's, that's the, the connection of Jesus and the church and husbands and wives. And when that happens, kids love it. Okay? When divorce occurs, there's a breakage in there somewhere. Okay? Breakages can be repaired. And that's one of the things that we uh, would look forward to. Okay. Wow, look at that. We finished the Sixth Commandment. Isn't that amazing? (laughs) Almost didn't do it, but we did it anyway. But if you want to look at the notes, you certainly could read the notes at home. Because there's really good stuff in there. The Bible is just really... Ephesians 5 is my favorite thing about marriage, especially where it says, wives, submit yourselves to your husbands. (laughs) I just love that. You know, I'm going to ponder that this week. Well, some of you men, uh, wives, would you join me in pondering that this week? That would be excellent. Okay, next week, we'll get into the seventh commandment. Yes. All right. Yes. Uh, And we'll look forward to that as well. Let's go uh, close with prayer. Father, we thank you so much for, uh, again, the way that your word speaks to us in such powerful ways. And it reminds us that sin is in the world. The world is a broken place, Lord, and we are part of it. But the beauty of it is that with the brokenness comes the joy of the, the healing power of your gospel in our lives, the gospel of your love, and the gospel of, uh, of what you've done for us in sending Jesus to be our Savior. So, uh, Lord, as we are challenged by this, uh, certainly society challenges us, and, and certainly our own thoughts do. Uh, help us to, to, to return to the word, the foundation that we, uh, that we live by and bless us in that and, uh, and help us to be uh, witnesses to that in the world around us. Watch over us this week, dear Lord, keep us all safe today until we're together again. And we pray that in Jesus name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Messiah's Upper Room Podcast. If you want to join the discussion, please send us an email with your question or comment to messiahlutheranpodcast at gmail.com, and we'll be happy to read it during an upcoming class. You can also go to our website at www.messiahlutheranpodcast.com, 
where you can find links to all the previous episodes and copies of our class notes in case you want to follow along with each episode. You can also find out where to subscribe to the podcast at messiahlutheranpodcast.com slash subscribe for links on how you can find us on iTunes, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, TuneIn, or any other podcast catcher of your choice. If you feel like we have given you any value during this podcast, please consider going to our podcast page in iTunes and leaving a rating or a review. Not only will that provide us with valuable feedback that we can use to improve the podcast for you, but it will help this podcast to climb the iTunes rankings and help us spread God's message to anyone willing to listen. Once again, thank you so much for listening to this episode, and until next time, may God bless you throughout your week. Bye.